This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The war in Ukraine has forced millions from their homes amid Russian bombardment. Many of these refugees are heading west to Poland, where organizers are working to keep up with seemingly endless arrivals. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post columnist Adam Zivo spent time on the ground in Warsaw and Lviv, and he joins me to discuss the effort to help refugees flooding into Poland, what the situation is like on the ground in eastern Ukraine, and the human toll of this war on those being displaced. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google. We're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Adam, you're just back in Canada after having gone over to Poland and Western Ukraine. And I do want to get into what you saw while you were there, the kind of things that you witnessed and experienced and your thoughts on everything that's going on in Europe right now. But first off, I am curious, what made you decide that you wanted to go see what was going on in Poland and Ukraine? What was the motivation behind that decision? Historically, I tend to be the kind of person who doesn't enjoy being a bystander. When there's a problem, I try to get involved in a way that feels substantive. And so a few days before I'd gone, I was essentially, you know, sitting on my couch at home thinking, what can I do here to contribute in a meaningful way? How do I do more than just sharing infographs and tweets online? Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, you know, one of my main skills is storytelling, right? And that's something that I excel at. And that's something that I might be able to lend to this cause in some capacity, And then I thought to myself, well, how can I use my storytelling for good? And I thought, well, why don't I just go to Poland and to Western Ukraine and write about what I see? I freelance for the National Post, so it's not my main day job. I do have a different job. I called my boss the next day. I had been planning on going on vacation at some points, either the following week or the week afterwards to go to Mexico or some other tropical country. And I said, hey, I've had these plans to go on vacation. I feel like that time would be better spent going to Poland and Ukraine and speaking about what's happening there. Are you cool with me going? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. And they were very comfortable with it. And so, you know, all of a sudden I had five days vacation, nine days overall when you count weekends to go tell the story. I booked the flights and maybe three, four days afterwards, I was in Europe. I understand like Poland is not part of this conflict, so it's not hard to get into Poland, but to make contacts in the movement of people that are helping refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine and 
organizing that kind of effort is not exactly something that's easy necessarily or to get embedded with these people. So how did you make contact with the people who you dealt with on the ground there? A lot of it came down to social media. So when I had confirmed that I was able to make this trip, I made a series of posts on all of my social channels telling people that I was going abroad and that any help would be deeply appreciated. And so many people reached out to me and made a number of connections. It also helped that I do have some contacts. I mean, I do, you know, all, all this LGBTQ activism stuff and all this writing. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, I'd gotten into contact with some international human rights activists. And so they made some connections there too. And then it kind of spiraled, you know, you make a connection, they connect you to someone else. One of my main connections that I'd made in Ukraine was actually a little bit random. There was this Ukrainian-based international writer. So he had moved to Eastern Europe for the low cost of living. And he had moved out of Ukraine because of all the war there. But I messaged him and I said, hey, is there anyone that you can connect me with that you can help me you know, speak to? And so he had a personal friend who was volunteering at the library that I detailed in my story. For those who haven't read that story, essentially it's a library where people are making camouflage netting. Okay. So there was a Facebook introduction. I messaged the woman. I said, hey, I'm coming to Ukraine. I'm coming to Lviv. She unfortunately wasn't able to make it. She was busy in a different part of the city, but she gave me the address. And then I just showed up and I said, hey, I'm writing for the National Post. Here are my previous articles. I'd written a number of times about Ukraine in a very you know, pro-Ukrainian way, which definitely helped with credibility and trust. Mm-hmm. And people just agreed to talk. I find it interesting. You mentioned you got there and got contacts due in part to your social media channels. What I found interesting is that a lot of the relief effort for refugees that you detailed was also being organized through these same social channels. I mean, it speaks to the kind of digital society we live in, but I also found it interesting that they're like social media influencers who were helping make organized what was chaotic at first. I'm wondering if you can tell me about that, explain how that kind of came about. What had happened was that in Warsaw, I was put in contact with an influencer who was organizing a volunteer project. And so I had sort of come across her through what one of my like LGBTQ channels. I came across a gay activist in Warsaw who was organizing relief efforts. And I asked him, hey, who'd be a good person to talk to? He said, you know, talk to this woman. She's doing a lot of volunteering. Send me the link. I was a little bit perplexed at first because, you know, I see this, this influencer account and it's all, you know, nice nails and typical influencer posts. Yeah. But I went on her stories and I saw that there was a strong commitment. And I said, okay, let's go for it. Now, before I had come, I'd been warned that some influencers seemed to be taking advantage of the situation for clout. That was something that a Polish friend in Toronto had said to look out for. So I had my eyes out for that. But then when I met this person at the train station, it was obvious that her commitment was real. And it wasn't just about theater and brand building. You know, she had arrived and she could barely speak because her voice was so hoarse from talking to people all the time. And she was late because she was dealing with all this paperwork. And, you know, when I was walking through the train station with her, she was getting all these long hugs from volunteers and talking logistics. She didn't want to be photographed until I told her that I kind of have to, if I want to tell your story. Mm -hmm. And so she reluctantly said yes. And then she insisted I don't link to her Instagram. But essentially what she had done was that she had created a group chat with people who were also influencers and coordinated an effort where they did call outs for donations. And because lots of people followed their accounts, whenever they did a call out, they got what they needed, right? If they Mm -hmm. needed SIM cards for refugees, 
they would make a post and people would comment. They needed volunteers. Volunteers would materialize out of thin air. And so they use their social channels and their social connections to essentially create this, this ready-made network. And they more or less stopped working their regular jobs for the time that they were doing this. And their clients understood because they said, we see what you're doing on social media. We see the amount of work that you're putting in. We see that it's real. If you're a little bit late with your deliverables, who cares? It's fine. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you have just this armada of volunteers at the central station handing out free food, helping refugees navigate train schedules, carrying babies and, and luggage. And it was astounding to see. It was incredibly inspiring. Why is Warsaw such an important hub in this effort to get people out of Ukraine and to, and to offer them support and, and see them on to other destinations? I wouldn't be able to say why most Ukrainians are going to Poland, but that's just the case. I think about 50% of refugees have gone there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a relatively developed country and it's also on route to a number of other countries. And so when people enter Poland, you know, at the Ukrainian Polish border, they can't really stay in a small city. I mean, there are other cities where they can go to, but the main thing is that they want to go to Warsaw because that's where all the services are. And then from there, they are given tickets to go to other countries if they want to. Many of them go to Berlin. Many of them go to the Netherlands. I think some of them go to France. So I would assume that Warsaw is a popular destination, A, because it's a large city where lots of support systems are, and B, because it's a very well-connected hub where people can go onward to other locations. With that many people coming into Poland, I imagine there are a lot of stories to tell, a lot of people to manage. What kind of things were you seeing on the ground in Warsaw when it comes to the experiences that these people were having as they were fleeing Ukraine? It was horrible. It was an endless flow of women and children. Mm -hmm. And the children had so much sadness in their faces that should never be on a child's face. You just have all of these mothers who are so anxious trying to deal with their distraught toddlers. You have people who just have thousand yard stares as they try to figure out what to do in their lives. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And especially when you first see it and you've never come across anything like that before, it breaks you inside a little bit. And then afterwards you start to get a little bit desensitized because, you know, how else are you going to cope with everything? And I don't mean cope in this melodramatic way to make it about you, but, you know, you have to kind of just put your emotions aside and think, well, what do people need and how can you help? Mm Mm-hmm. There was this one family that we spoke to, and this was detailed in the first article that I wrote. They were from Eastern Ukraine, and the husband was tying his shoe when he heard a thud, and a missile had crash-landed like five meters away from him, cratering the sidewalk, and had failed to explode. And if it had exploded, he would be dead. Yeah. So he was in shock, and he was taking a photo of himself with it. And then his wife who was with us, she began to burst into tears and she hugged the translator who I was with. Mm-hmm. Just she couldn't stop crying. When I was at the border, you just have wave and after wave after wave of women and children. And I interviewed a few of them and there was this one woman and she just started to weep and she said, I have nothing now. Every single thing that she'd worked towards had disappeared and she had four kids to take care of. Hmm. I was interviewing her and she started to cry and she had a baby that she was holding and the baby started to cry because she started to cry. Mm -hmm. And then she said, you know, let's take a pause. And she started to keep herself together and to stop crying. 
so that her baby would be okay. And then she continued to tell her story about how devastated her life was, barely restraining her tears to make sure her infant wasn't upset. Yeah. The kids get to you. There's so many kids and you just think about like, what are they going to do? Like, how can they be helped? When we crossed back from Ukraine to Poland, there were a group of, I think, like 15 to 20 unaccompanied children, no adults in sight, no parents. And, you know, they're being taken care of as best as people can take care of them. You know, they're, they're given food and shelter. But there's also so much confusion. And you think about how alone they are in that world. So it's really, really heartbreaking. We'll be right back. You mentioned the flood of people coming over the border. You you obviously went from Warsaw to the Poland-Ukraine border and, and into Ukraine. I'm curious, you know, what other things did you see along the way? What was that experience like trying to get into Ukraine as people are trying to flee? And what were your thoughts even heading into the country? What were you expecting to see when you got there? Well, so all of the accommodations around the main border area are taken for obvious reasons. They're all housing refugees. So we stayed at a place called Yaroslav, which is a small town of about 50,000 people an hour away from the border. And it's interesting because what was inspiring to see was how people were helping each other to provide aid. So we were going to take a train to Medica, which is the border area. And then there was a guy in our hotel and he was Polish and he lived in Scotland and he'd flown back to Poland and rented a car just so he could ferry people around as much as possible. So he offered us a ride. Mm -hmm. So he drove us to the border and then we had no idea how we were going to get into Lviv from there, but we just had faith that it would work out and we would hitchhike with someone. And that's what happened. You know, we were there at 9am and there was a convoy of about four vans that were being driven by American volunteers. And there was this guy who we met the previous day who was unrelated and he had a whole bunch of medical supplies and he said, Hey, can you help us move the medical supplies in? So suddenly we show up at this convoy and we said, Hey, can you drive us into Lviv? And also here's a bunch of medical supplies. Can you transport that as well? And they said, sure. So suddenly we're in this random van <laughs> and then we go to Lviv. Rural Ukraine is beautiful. There were all these churches that we passed by that had golden domes that were glistening in the sunlight. It's a really lovely countryside and a lovely country to see. But then obviously you come across all of these military checkpoints and they're formidable. Essentially what they are is that they're walls of sandbags that zigzag. So you can't drive through them. And with, you know, the whole bunch of guys with big guns and they ask you what you're doing. And of course you can't photograph any of that because that would compromise their safety and their security. So we went through checkpoint after checkpoint. They got more elaborate the closer we got to the city. And before we arrived in Lviv, I wasn't sure about how safe it would be. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have a city where there's a giant refugee crisis, I thought, well, is there going to be food? Is it going to be unsafe? Is there going to be a breakdown of public order? So I, I bought a day's worth of food to bring with me just in case, because our plan was to get in the morning and leave in the evening. And I thought, well, what if there's not enough food for me to buy? What happens if we're in a situation where we're, you know, by feeding ourselves, we're taking food away from someone else. 
And also the translator who I was with had brought two bulletproof vests and I didn't want to wear them in Poland because that seemed excessive and you know performative. But mm-hmm. when we were going into Lviv, I thought, well, maybe, you know, we should wear them just in case. Yeah. And so I did. I got to say, I didn't expect the bulletproof vest to be so comfortable. It feels like a weighted blanket. <laughs> <laughs> And then we arrive in the city in some suburban strip mall that looks exactly like a strip mall in Toronto. Like every suburban neighborhood in the world seems to all look the same. We get out because that's where our American friends are meeting their contact. And I look and I see a supermarket where people are shopping and it's full of food. And I'm like, well, now I feel like an idiot <laughs> for, for bringing all this food and for bringing this bulletproof vest. So we donate the bulletproof vest to, you know, so they can be used for soldiers. And then when we get inside the city, it's just remarkably normal, considering the circumstances. I mean, obviously, there's traces of war everywhere, but it's not as if everyone's living in a constant state of misery and fear. But I mean, there were signs of people making preparations. You mentioned people making netting in a library. And then you were also looking to connect with people who were there making Molotov cocktails. Like, obviously, these are people either preparing for war to arrive in their city or to provide supplies to people further east. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that Western Ukraine has been relatively peaceful over the course of this conflict. And so what's happened is that Western Ukrainians have taken on a supportive role. So they've been processing and sheltering refugees coming from the east, which is why when you go to the bus station, the train station, there's just enormous crowds of refugees trying to find some shelter and trying to find a way to get into Poland. And then you just have all these volunteers who are trying to aid with the war effort in some way. So I received an address through my contact and I went there expecting some sort of, you know, very intense operation. And then I come across a library and that's the location. And it's very tranquil inside and almost meditative. And essentially what's happened is that the library has become the center for people to weave camouflage netting. So they take these large nets and they string them up inside the library, and then people weave pieces of fabric through them to provide cover and to create a texture that looks almost like leaves. And then I met all these various, you know, young women, a few men who were helping out. And essentially what had happened is that they were just doing their jobs during the day and then volunteering as much as they could. And there I met, you know, one of the leaders of the library, who was this Ukrainian writer named Anastasia. And I asked her about the normalcy of the city. I said, hey, this is not what I expected. And I feel a little bit strange talking about this because I don't want to minimize the pain of the Ukrainians or, you know, in any way underplay what's happening. So I said, what do you think of this? Like, how should I talk about this? How do you interpret it? And she had made a comparison to COVID. And she had said that COVID had taught Ukrainians that in times of emergencies, times of trouble, you know, you can't just shut everything down perpetually. And so she'd said they'd learned the importance of maintaining your economy. Mm-hmm. And as much as they were volunteering and as much as they were horrified by the war, they were encouraged to go out and shop and to go out and eat and to live life as normally as possible. Because when you go and you spend money at a restaurant, you know, that supports that restaurant tour and their family. And so that economic resilience was a major part of their response to the war. And so that normalcy was for them a form of resistance and a form of protecting their country, making sure that after the war, they have an economy to stand on. Mm-hmm. There are people who are making Molotov cocktails. I read that in the international media. So I asked them afterwards, I said, hey, 
do you know where I could find that production facility? Anastasia made some inquiries and she said that unfortunately the site was close to press and foreigners due to safety issues. They don't want to compromise the integrity of these operations. They don't want photos getting out unless they really, really, really know you. And I just sort of shown up. Yeah. And so they said I wouldn't be able to access it. But what they did is that there was a woman who was at the library, incidentally, and they introduced me to her. And so she only spoke Ukrainian. So I basically just held my phone in front of her and I said, and she just talked for like five minutes. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. And then I gave the clip to my translator because the translator was somewhere else at the time. And I learned that this woman who was 19 years old, essentially had been making Molotov cocktails since she was 14 years old because this war with Russia, it's not necessarily a new thing. The full scale invasion is new. Yeah, There's been a shadow war with Russia in the East since 2014, 2015. And her father had made Molotov cocktails when she was young during the Euromaidan revolution, which for those listening essentially is when the Ukrainians rose up and overthrew a pro-Russian president who they viewed as corrupt and obsequious to Putin. Mm -hmm. And so he made Molotov during that uprising and she had learned of his techniques by watching him. He never wanted to teach her. But she just absorbed it from being nearby. And then she started to make Molotov cocktails. And then her parents were very mad at her, saying that this is not a job for a woman. Your job is to find a husband and have kids. And her response was, she said that uh, she let that go in one ear and out the other. And I'm like, you know what? This is my new feminist icon. <laughs> this is the girl boss energy I want to see in life. <laughs> I am curious, you know, Looking at your time in Warsaw and the the travel to get from Warsaw into Ukraine and your time in Lviv, what would you say that maybe the people in, in North America need to know about what's going on there? I think people need to understand that conflict is highly regionalized and that, yes, the conflict in East Ukraine is devastating. Cities are being wiped off the map. People are being shelled and killed. But at the same time, devastation in one region doesn't mean devastation everywhere. And we have to be careful not to start indulging sort of like war porn. The fact is that the region is very complex and there is a huge distinction between Eastern and Western Ukraine and that we should be mindful of the fact that Western Ukraine is more peaceful and that we should celebrate the resiliency of the Ukrainians who are trying to get by in West Ukraine rather than just, you know, construct them as being passive victims of violence. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that people need to be a little bit more realistic about the dangers in Eastern Europe. I mean, many people who heard that I was going to Poland were very worried for me. And this was before they knew I was going to Ukraine. <laughs> and they said, be safe, come back in one piece. And I was like, I'm going to Poland. The war is in Ukraine. <laughs> Poland is a NATO country. It's part of the EU as well. There's going to be no gunfire in Warsaw. And so I think people have this idea now that all of Eastern Europe is dangerous. And that's not productive. It might be a little bit insulting to the Poles and to you know surrounding countries that are also dealing with this refugee crisis. For example, uh, let's say Moldova and Hungary. If we can accept, for example, that like Germany was able to accept one million Syrian refugees back in 2015 and still be a safe and functioning society, we should be able to accept that Poland is the same way rather than exoticizing Eastern Europe and imagining it to be some playground of violence, if that makes sense. 
Well, I hope that people who have seen your reporting from the ground get a sense of the situation over there. And I hope people listening kind of have gotten a sense of the gravity of things, but also the context for what's going on right now. Adam, extremely important reporting. Thanks for your time. Happy to be here and to talk about it. It's an important story to tell. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Adam Zivo. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.